Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Remember leaving the house and going to stuff? Well, it's back because Great Big Owl is bringing some of our favorite shows to the London Podcast Festival starting September the 2nd. And we'd love to see you there. So if you're a fan of Two Mr. Peas in a podcast. Brian and Roger. My mate bought a toaster. Friends with friends. The The One Show Show. Richard and Greta. From Queer to Eternity. Wrestle Me. Or just daytime drinking. Then go to the King's Place website and grab some tickets now. And by some tickets, we ideally mean eight tickets. That's one for each show. Actually, bring a friend and make that 16 tickets. Great Big Owl. The only podcast network with the audacity to ask you to buy 16 tickets in one go. But we'll be thrilled if you just buy one. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. you pop craze youngsters and welcome to part three of episode 61 of chart music i'm your host al needham over there is sarah b just to the side of her is simon price and i feel i've got a handle on this strange and futuristic world of 2003 so let's not fanny about let's plunge back into this episode We fade into cotton, looking at a tiny video screen of the last performance as she warns us to beware of murder dolls. She then pivots into some nonsense off the autocue about stout as she prepares us for another Irish boy band and invites us to dig the new breed as she introduces Invisible by D-Side. Cobbled together in Dublin in 2001 by the Sweeney Twins, a pair of doctors who were dabbling in band management, D-Side were a boy band who were quickly signed up to the Hamburg media company Adel. 
They were immediately linked up to the managerial capabilities of Kim Glover, the former head of radio and TV at Arista Records, who was part of the management team of New Kids on the Block, the manager for a short time of Princess Stephanie of Monaco in her doomed attempt to become a pop star in the early 80s, and a guided PJ and Duncan let loose and bewitched towards the top end of the charts. Their debut single, Stronger Together, was only released in Ireland, getting to number five there in August of 2002, but they landed support slots on tours by Westlife and Blue, and a slot on the Smash Hits tour, leading to their next single, Speechless, being put out across Europe. It slammed into the UK chart at number nine in April of this year, but immediately slithered down. This is the follow-up, and it's a brand new entry this week at number seven. So yeah, first things first, dig the new breed. (laughs) Do you think the Fern Cotton of 2003 would have been into early James Brown or Jam Live albums? I think not. Yeah, I mean, it really becomes more obvious as the show goes on, just how auto-cued it is, doesn't it? Mm. I mean, again, you know, Sarah said we're we're never happy when it's shambolic or when it's not shambolic. Mm. There's got to be a happy medium. There does, yeah. I mean, Derek Okora, for one. Um, But uh, (laughs) in the early 80s, we used to, you know, we've we've done episodes where we've we've moaned about people like, you know, Mike Reed or whoever, ad-libbing and just talking absolute bollocks. Mm. And then when they don't, it's like, oh, it's so scripted. But yeah, it it did sort of, it does jar a little bit where it's clearly somebody else's words, possibly Chris Cowie's words, who knows. There's a production assistant that handles all this now, but I, I think Cowie's put that in. Right, and all all that business about the Emerald Isle and all these cliches, yeah, it's like, God, please. Weak sauce. So anyway, D-side. Wouldn't have known them if they'd have shagged me ma'am no, in 2003. No, same, same like, like Wayne Wonder. I mean, it was, it was my job to know this stuff, and they totally passed me, but three top ten hits, apparently. Not a, yes. Nope, nope, not a fucking clue. I mean, b- being called D-side, I would have assumed they were from Shotton or Connors Key. Um, yes. But, but no, yeah, Irish boy band, and... Uh, I guess if Westlife are shaking Boyzone, then D-Side are shaking Westlife, or or yeah. shaking, shaking Boyzone, to put it another way. Yeah. I prefer the continuity Westlife. <laughs> they do have a bit more energy than Westlife. I mean, Westlife were, were quite wet, weren't they? They're standing up, and that's a start, yeah. <laughs> standing up and moving around, and, and in some cases sort of uh, jumping and pogoing in a rock style. <laughs> yeah. I had no memory of them at all either, but it's hard to lay into a, a boy band or a girl band because it's like there's so many of them and so they had such a short shelf life um, I mean they did okay they sort of lasted for a bit didn't they this, these guys and they did okay in Japan yeah. at this time they appear to be the coming boys of pop after Five and Blue or at least Smash It seemed to think so did they really think that? well they're on the cover of the latest Smash It and when they approached them yeah. for that cover the band had to tell them that they, they couldn't make a photo shoot because they were touring Germany at the time and Smash It got back to them and said oh okay well we're going to fly out and take you to Malaga and they finished the gig in Berlin they got whipped straight onto a plane put on a yacht given a wardrobe of clothes to put on they did the photo shoot did the interview flown back to Germany in the morning so you know Smash Hits clearly thought that, that this was the next thing fucking yeah. hell 
the money that was still sloshing around in journalism and in the industry at that yeah, time. Yeah, Successful yeah. journalism in any case. Yeah. Yeah, well, Smash It's needed bands like this to sort of keep coming along at, at regular intervals. Mm. So they had a hugely vested interest in this sort of stuff. I mean, three top ten hits, none of them got any higher than number seven, I think. Mm. So it ne- didn't quite work out. No. <laughs> but they've got to number seven more than we have. They've, yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, the song, it's, it's bog standard boy band. Yeah balladry isn't yeah, it i mean yeah, if yeah. they were on stools they'd stand for the key change it's that kind of song written by andreas carlson who wrote for nsync and backstreet boys and westlife yeah. and chris braid who's written for everyone so it's inevitably it's generic although there's this creepy voyeur twist to the lyrics isn't there mm. if i was invisible then i could just watch you in your room yeah, oh, <laughs> that's quite twilight isn't it yeah it's, it's up there with knock three times by tony orlando and dawn <laughs> wrongness the thing about that is as as a sort of uh i don't know if you can call it a a trope but i guess it's something that does occur like a lot of things that are presented to you as romantic they're actually very fucking creepy there's a whole bag of that shit yeah you know you can't give consent to be watched as you sleep by you know they haven't really thought this through as a sort of romantic concept partly because the creepy element partly because like you know if it's like i'll watch you in your room and it's like when women are alone in their room, they're not going to waft around in a in a satin slip, like all seductive, like a fucking flake advert. They're going to be in their old fucking baggy boy cotton pants, mm. and they're going to sit weird, and they're going to belch freely, yeah. and they're going to mutter to themselves and pick their feet and sing out of tune and just be relaxed. And you wouldn't like no. it. You wouldn't like it. Women are women are gross. You wouldn't yeah. like it. Yeah, I mean, if you're invisible, sorry, a lad of that age, if he got the opportunity to be invisible, he'd go, oh, I'm I'm going into town and nicking all the Xbox games. Yeah, you'd do other stuff, wouldn't you? Yeah. (laughs) You'd go and, you'd go and like, you'd go and stick your wet finger in people's ears and watch them, "Ah!" Exactly. The main singer, lad, looks like Owen Jones, which is a bit unsettling. Mm, But um, one of them looks like David Moyes, which is even more unsettling. Um, So they're they're not, they're not the sort of, I mean, given that they are created to be objectified, they're not very objectifiable, no. I, I would say. No. Um, I mean, you know, easy for me to say, look at how I look. But anyway, there, there's <laughs> what makes me laugh is there's there's a bad boy one, isn't there? Yes. It's yeah, the yeah. law. It's the law with a boy band. You have band. to have one, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's got, he's got spiky hair and frosted tips and, and a thumb ring, mm. and, and, uh, and, and he pogos about, and he does some sort of Fred Durst type, like, rap yes. metal dancing. But it's all a bit try-hard, isn't it? That might be Dane Geeden, okay. who is thoroughly enjoying the fruits of pop fame at the moment because he was in the papers round about this time squiring Jodie Marsh about. Okay. Uh. There was an article in Ireland Sunday World which reads they may have been snatched leaving a club together for a torrid night of wild sex but this is the first picture of Irish boy band star Dane Geeden and glamour girl Jodie Marsh posing for the cameras. Page three girl Joda, infamous rival of Jordan, claims she spent five hours making love to Dubliner Dane. She added, he was like an athlete. He went on for hours, five to be exact. He may look like a teenager, but he's all man. Five to be exact. I'm sorry, that's not exact enough. I want like five hours and 11 minutes or something. Yeah. (laughs) Handsome Dane laughed. 
I just wanted to give her plenty. <laughs> I just want to say that I, I love that kind of journalism because it's something no one's going to deny. Mm. You know, it's obviously, it's entirely made up. The quotes are obviously completely made up. Mm. But nobody from either um, Star's PR company is going to get in touch and threaten legal action and say, no, no actually, I'm shit at sex. I lasted three minutes, yeah. you know. So, <laughs> yeah. so, it, it just, so you've got free reign to just say any of that shit. You know? But anyway, the performance, it's... It, absolute fucking cat shit i mean yeah you're right as we mentioned boy bands have clearly progressed from all sitting down and then all standing up together at the emotional bits but they've not been choreographed at all have they 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 look like five Mm -hmm. lads in a club who've been dragged up on stage to pretend to mime to a d-side record in order to win a wicked key ring you know, they're all doing their own performance. It's, it's, it's crap. I think that's probably deliberate, though, isn't it? It's like they're all meant to be, you know... Individuals. Uh, it's, it's that's that's that one and that's that's that one, you know, <laughs> in a very rudimentary way. Yeah, but they don't do anything that's interesting. I mean, the only synchronicity you see in performances, you notice that they, they do a bit of group walking to the back of the stage so they can all mm. rush up to the front again. And they all hold their radio mics right at the top, which is what I tend to do during a pub quiz or when I'm doing karaoke to boost the volume a little bit. And, of course, one of them near the end, the bad boy, does the tipping the mic to the audience bit to sing along <laughs> to, to a song that's only just come out that, that nobody seems to be that into so they don't know the fucking words yeah that's brilliant mm. oh, there's a set of moves that you go through and that's one of them yeah it's a bit preemptive there it's a bit previous you know mm. yeah one of the reasons to keep going through through the hellscape of, of the music industry is the thought that one day you might be on a stage and people will sing your song back to you mm. and that's the kind of shit that'll make it all worthwhile but you can't just do that no it's a, a bit of a leap <laughs> Faith, isn't it? <laughs> you know, you've got to earn it. It's one step down from just turning round and then just falling into the audience, hoping you're going to be caught. <laughs> yeah. I think if D side had tried to get the entire audience to sit down, they might have sat down, mm. but they wouldn't jump up again. No. Yeah, it's a bit of a jumble, and it's a bit. It's it's very um, it's very forgettable. Mm. They have the same problem that Wayne Wonder had as well. I think where they're just uh, it's like they can't hear themselves. But hey, they're the first band to actually be there for this episode. Oh yeah. So we get a sweep from Fern Cotton to the stage and back again. So, you know, well done mm. well done to them for being there when they needed to. Decider in reception. Yes, yeah. they're punctual if mm. nothing else. Oh, I, I was going to you mentioned Let Loose and they were the great lost boy band. They were they had a couple of absolutely cracking singles. Right. I don't know if they were. Yeah. Yeah, they were really good. Yeah, you should. We should put them in the playlist. Yeah. So the following week, Invisible dropped 10 places to number 17 because even the young girls aren't buying singles these days. The follow-up, Real World, entered the chart at number 9 in December but no higher and after pushing me out only got to number 21 in June of 2004, they never bothered the chart again. And after a spell of being moderately sizable in Japan in the mid-noughties, like Spinal Tap, they split up in 2006 with Derek Moran going on to present the Channel 5 kids show Milkshake. That's mental. Mm. We were used to indie bands in the 90s entering the chart high and then dropping straight down. But bands like this, going on top of the pops, is surely it's supposed to push them up a bit higher, isn't it? Yeah, that's uh, that, that, that's that's got to dent the ego a little bit, hasn't it? Fucking hell. But appearing on top of the pops used to be, you know, you've got to a certain position and here's your reward and it's you're going to sell more singles. By this time, it's just a reward for getting that high in the first place. 
Yeah. Strange times and sad times. Mm. In, in a backhanded way, it's a sign of the success of record labels in that they've really got their shit together marketing-wise and they can have a sort of impact date, as they call it, rather than a release yeah. date for a single and make sure that everybody buys it in the first mm. week. But then it fucks it up. For, it doesn't have that long no. tail and you don't get the, the lovely long climb of a proper mm. hit record. So, you know, in, in a way, yeah, the major labels being um, a victim of their own yes. success. Oh, well. Fuck them. <laughs> Wait, I already Television history is contained within the box of delights. It was happening in front of us. Incredible. In our living rooms. It was amazing. Guests pick their favourite television moment and tell us why they love it. And is this the episode where Daisy's just been for the interview at the Woman's Magazine? Flaps. That's it, Flaps. Yeah. Named one of Radio Time's best podcasts of the year. I don't understand people who don't see the joy in drawing the curtains, mug of hot chocolate and something nice on TV. Like, what could be nicer than that? Than having a snuggle. Exactly. Nostalgia in bite-sized chunks. Box of Delights from Great Big Owl. There's another new boy band on the block. That's D-Side. Still to come, we've got Beyonce, Benny Benassi, The Coral, and the official Top of the Pops Top 20. But for now, Fern is in the star bar, reliving her fondest memories of those days back at the Academy. Yet another boy band on the block sniffs Bonin, who then goes on to spoiler the rest of the show in case you were starting to wonder what was going off in Weatherfield. She then whips us over to Cotton in the star bar. Knocked up by BBC Carpenters in 2001, <laughs> the Star Bar was part of Top of the Pops' brand new set when it returned to Television Centre in October of that year. In an interview with the BBC News website that month, Chris Cowie said, Much more important than the move is the fact that we've got a new set, meaning the programme will be much more the way me and the team want it to be. Now we've also got the Star Bar. The Star Bar will be a glorified green room and it'll be a great place to be. A place where artists can relax, hang out, bring their entourage, girlfriends, boyfriends, lawyers and rub shoulders with other stars. Hmm. Mm. As we've come to learn on chart music, me dears, Top of the Pops has always been happy to pad out episodes with interviews with people like the old sailor, motor show models, American acts who are passing through, little and large in their panto gear, uh, even Peter Marinello for fuck's sake. But this is this is next level fucking with the formula, isn't it? Yeah, you know what? It's funny because um, on a recent episode, in fact, the most recent episode, yes, we complained about the kids from Fame being yes. there in person on top of the pops, but hardly getting to say any words. Um, mm. Well, watch out what you wish for, isn't it? Really, yes. <laughs> because we yes. do get this really overly long section, which completely kills any momentum the show had. Um, yeah with Fern in the star bar, while, you know, you've got all these smartly dressed young media professionals from London having a cocktail in the background, like, you know, we're meant to somehow care who they are. They don't look like lawyers to me. No. No, and it's it's all to cross-promote the BBC's new season of Fame Academy. I mean, 
right at the very beginning when we see them in in the intro um these 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 two cuts how who are they why are we meant to care you know i mean the general assumption about the star ball was that it was inspired by the interview sections in tfi friday but mm. you know come on now this is a direct nick from the tube isn't it where they had a pub across the road from the ah. studio called the egypt cottage and that was used as the green room and used on occasions for interviews and the like good spot Al. I, I hadn't clocked that but yeah and so you know cow is had this in his back pocket for a while yeah yeah the problem is is the fucking decor in the star bar is so sterile that it looks like you're watching a canteen in a trade show where you know people in ties and lanyards burn their mouths on a panini while they try and sell software and uh, photocopiers to each other it's not pop and it's certainly not interesting yeah you can see what the idea is it's like mm. they're trying to establish it as like oh come with us and in and, and peep into the the, the inner backstage sanctum yeah the breakout room of pop yeah but it, it looks exactly like the set outside which bends your yeah. brain a little bit i mean at least there's enough people in it it's not like there's a couple of people standing around awkwardly it does seem like it's a bar mm. and there's that kind of authentic ambient noise so it isn't like too it could have been cringier but it's still not it's it's just a bit odd isn't it it's just yeah it's very sterile it's very um very not very top of the pops and it, no. I think we've all experienced the, the the sort of dubious frisson of of being in that place, you know, being back in the bit where other people are not allowed. And mm. it's mm. it's not always. Sometimes it's exciting and 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 cool, but it can also be really boring and and sort of yeah. weirdly bleak and empty and yes. kind of make you question your life choices. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter how much free booze there is. It's like yeah, free booze, and then it's like, oh, is this my is this. Is this my life? Is that all there is? Is that all there is? And, yeah. you know, you don't really want that in the middle of your Top of the Pops, do you? Yeah, what it's like, it's like, uh, you know, in, in Zoolander, there's this bit where there's some party and there's like a, a velvet rope and behind that there's the VIP area. Mm. And then um, then they, they, they make it through there and then there's another velvet rope and another and eventually get, they get to the VVVIP <laughs> area. And when they get there, they're just Winona Ryder sat on her own looking really depressed. <laughs> that's, that's what these places are often like. And I think Cadbury's got something to say about this. Ah. <laughs> it would have been good if they'd had it as, like, um, Star Bar sponsored by Star Bar, but it, they weren't quite that cross-pollinating at this point. This section is not shot through with peanuts, is it? It is the sort of place that... Shot if, through with arseholes. <laughs> if your mate arranged to meet you there for a drink, yeah. you'd, you'd turn up and you'd have one drink and then you'd say, do you mind if we go somewhere else? You just work, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just too weird. I'll tell you what it reminds me of, actually, with all the white everywhere. It reminds me of that, uh, you know, that the W Hotel that popped up in Soho. Like, yes. Uh, that one, it's just around the corner from Leicester Square. And it's just white. And it looks like it's just landed from Tokyo, but not in a good way. Mm-hmm. As if Godzilla's just lobbed it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you may have noticed, pop crazy youngsters, that we haven't said anything so far about the kids, and that's because so far there've been nothing more than a row of silhouetted heads and arms. That's right. Yeah. Even the spectators in Roy the Rovers get a speech bubble every now and then. But finally, we get to see two young women who have been told to stand in the background holding a drink, while two lads on the other side look at them. <laughs> a, a, a great place to be indeed i've been wondering about this because um obviously we already learned that they film various bits of footage in france or italy mm. or whatever and and patch it in yeah. and i wondered if it's because the audiences in those places would look too different from british audiences you'd just be able to yeah. tell all those sombreros <laughs> 
<laughs> no, but you know what I mean. They look very Euro. But that's the thing, Simon, because now they've committed to pre-recording stuff, there'd be no sense of continuity in the audience. Yeah, but it would give you more of a sense, like, if you don't see the same people all the time, it gives you more of a sense of there being more people there. Yeah. It's quite sort of audience porridge, isn't it? It's quite yes. it's quite a, a sort of mush. Yeah. You get the general sense that people are quite happy to be there. It's not It's not too flat. But I do get the sense, and I wonder if, you know, in their little kind of instruction, well, not an email, but in their their little instruction leaflet that they would get, like, don't dress up, like, dress down, just dress relaxed and stuff, because Mm. you used to, anyone that you would see on Top of the Pops, any of the kids would be dressed to the nines, mostly. Mm. Um, And, you know, obviously obviously the blokes would generally lag behind, but you don't really see, there's not, like, standout outfits or anything. Dress like you're from somewhere between Britain and France. Dress like you're from Guernsey. (laughs) (laughs) Grant and Richard Park to the Star Bar. Hello. Hiya. The Star Bar immediately became a weekly fixture on the show, containing three minutes or so of interviews with bands and artists, but it wasn't shy in breaking up the flow with a blatant dollop of cross-platform brand synergisation, and this week is no exception, as we're treated to an advert for the new series of Fame Academy. Squeezed out of the arsehole of Endemol in 2002, Fame Academy was the British franchise of the Spanish TV programme Operacion Trifuno and was a mashup of Fame, Pop Idol and Big Brother, where contestants were boarded in a mansion in Highgate and given an intensive musical and performance art education over 10 weeks with live online streaming and highlights shown on CBBC and BBC3. And they compete for a £1 million record contract and the use of a luxury apartment in London and a sports car for one year. Sports car. The first series, which concluded in October of 2002, gave the world the gift of David Snedden, who got to number one in January of this year with his debut single, Stop Living the Lie. And the second series begins tomorrow night. So here's two of the teaching staff. Born in Kirkcaldy in 1948, Richard Park is a former DJ on the pirate station Radio Scotland who was part of the original pool of Radio 1 presenters, working primarily on the Radio 1 Club and Round Table. After moving back to Scotland to concentrate on football on Radio Clyde, working his way up to head of entertainment, he came back to London in the late 80s to assume the role of programme controller of Capital Radio. In 1997, he formed Wildstar Records and was responsible for the signing of Craig David. By 2003, he's the head of his own consultancy company, the radio consultant for EMAP and the headmaster of Fame Academy in the Shaking Cow role. So Richard Park is actually a big shot in, in the music industry and the radio industry. Yes, he is. And he's only the age I am now. Uh, in this uh, footage, Ooh. he looks well leathery, like an old wallet, doesn't he? Yes. <laughs> and he, he's the headmaster on Fame Academy. And yeah, it quickly becomes obvious from the the way they feed him lines to kind of, you know, be, be snippy about other people, that he is the shaking Simon Cowell, you know, because Pop yes. Idol was going already by this point, and be going a couple of seasons. And 
Bishop yeah. Parks, he's, he's doing that Carol thing of being the, the hard-to-please judge. And Fern mm. helpfully points out that he's Mr. Meany. Like, yeah, we, we get it, you know. Born in Enfield in 1965, Cary Grant made her Top of the Pops debut in 1983 as a member of Sweet Dreams, the UK entrant in that year's Eurovision Song Contest with I'm Never Giving Up, which finished sixth and got to number 21 in May of that year. After the follow-up single, 17 Electric flopped, the group split up at the end of 83 and Grant fell into vocal coaching with her husband David Grant, formerly of Lynx. Since then, they've worked with Take That and the Spice Girls, and in 2001, she was recruited by Pop Idol as an on-screen vocal coach and was poached, along with her husband, to do likewise for Fame Academy. And they're already matey with Fern, it turns out, because she's been on the celebrity version of Fame Academy, we learn, and there's lots of hilarious bants about how she can't sing and all that. So, Mm. obviously, I looked them up. Carrie Grant's a vocal coach. She was. We find out... She was once um, a Eurovision entrant in a group called Sweet Dreams, who, I, yes. I was going to say nobody remembers, I don't know if you do, but I, Just I don't. About. And they were like a shake in Buck's Fizz, and, and it turns out one member of them, Bobby McVeigh, actually later joined the Fizz. Yes. Which is shows how incestuous this world of kind of Eurovision slash talent show groups is. Uh, I mean, Fame Academy was something that definitely contributed to the shittening of Saturday evening TV, where it seemed that terrestrial television schedules had been put together by Joe Maplin. <laughs> so you got a fucking singing competition, then you got a dancing competition, you got a personality competition. You know, I can't believe that nowadays they haven't done a glamorous grandmother <laughs> show or celebrity <laughs> knobbly knees. What the fuck happened to those good old days when we were entertained by Jeremy Beadle dressed up as an oil shake yeah it's i I mean i never watched any of these things really i watched bits and bobs but i can't my second-hand embarrassment is too acute (laughs) like i just it's not entertainment for me no it's not fun at all it's just like ah ah, no stop it Mm. stop it they're already dead (laughs) even when you get past yeah i just can't the the pressure of it is too stressful for me yeah it's really odd there's such a dissonance about having that plopped in the middle here in so many ways i mean same as sarah i i never watched fame academy and you know you've you've mentioned snedden um and he did okay out of it he had a number one and apparently then became a successful songwriter for other people and that first season um yeah. they all did all right Sinead quinn came second had a number two hit the big winner was actually lamar who mm. came third but had a run of yes like seven top 10 hits but by the time of this season coming around that they're, tr- they're desperately trying to plug here the public were obviously already bored of it because the season they're trying to sell us here was won by Alex Parks, mm. who had a number three hit yeah. and then a number 13 and then got dropped by a label. And that, that was the end of Fame Academy in Britain. Anyway, no one gave a fuck. Yes. Hi. Now, Fame Academy starts tomorrow. So what can we expect from the new series? Well, I think there's going to be sweat, angst, there'll be tears again. As you know, when you came into the celebrity show, you shed a few. I think that uh, we're raising the standard that we're looking for. We're hoping to produce a real star, but in doing so, we want to make sure that we work everybody to the very extremes. This this academy, though, is the best place to learn, Fern. Now, (laughs) Richard... Obviously, we have met before, Celebrity Fame Academy. I don't know if you saw, but Richard was quite horrible to me. Uh, will you be as mean and tough this year? I think I'll be exactly what I was with you, which is honest. I told you, you couldn't sing, and Fern, you can't sing. What? I'm moving on, Carrie. Defend yes. me. I wasn't that bad, was I? Um, I think you were just very nervous. I think you can sing, but that you got hit with nerves. So what are the contenders like this year? 
Oh my gosh. Well, there are 25 of them, and I would say I'm personally excited about maybe 10 or 11 of them. The British music business could actually use something special for it, and I know that Carrie, uh, David, myself, and Robin Gibb will be looking for the very best, and, and we'll be starting tomorrow night, 6.30, BBC One, and the first seven will be giving it all they've got. Now, what do you think of tonight's talent, then? We've seen Beyoncé. You fans of Beyoncé? Now, Beyoncé is the Don. She's so fantastic. Her voice is great. She looks great. Her performance is great. And she's got nice, big, girly hips, which Hasn't I like. She, she can yeah. shake that booty. Yeah. Cotton, perched uncomfortably on a bar stool leaning against a TV screen, asks Park and Grant what the second series of Fame Academy is going to be like. Park says there's going to be a lot of sweat, blood and tears and reminds Cotton how rammel she was when she did the obligatory comic relief does Fame Academy in March of this year, being the second one to be eliminated. One after Paul Ross, one before Joe Brandt. He could at least have banged a big stick on the floor when he's saying sweat. You know, yes. come on, get it right, mate. I've seen clips of her doing She's not a bad singer. She's She's better than me. Put it that yeah, way. but the whole thing of this is to go, ah, oh, you were shit, and you have to go, ah, oh, yeah, I was shit, and there's something really yeah. unpleasant about that. It's like, oh, it's all in good fun, it's all in good fun. Yeah. There's so much of everything that's saturated with that thing now, where it's like, oh, it's just a joke, it's just a joke, funny, it's a just, it's just pants, and you have to if you're in the, mm. if, you know, if if the camera is on your face yeah. or you know you're you're in the public eye whatsoever, you have to take it in good humour. Mm. That's quite a lot to ask of somebody, but it just becomes, it's it's just becoming normalised at this point. And it's assumed yeah. that we're all in on the joke and we're all enjoying it along with them. You know, it's a bit like on fucking Morecambe and Wise yeah. when they used to get Des O'Connor on and make a joke about how shit he was and everything. Which, well, actually, yeah. no, it's yeah. not, is it? Because that was, that was all right. That was actually quite funny. Cotton asks Park if he's going to be as much of a horrible bastard this time as he was last year, and he says he was just being honest. <laughs> she turns to Grant and asks her what she thinks of Beyonce. Grant reckons she's dead good, and it's nice that she's got a bit of meat on her. <laughs> then the TV screen switches to D-side, still standing on the now darkened stage, and this happens. Yeah, and good. how about D-side? I thought that uh, as a coming boy band, they're not quite together yet. I don't think they've probably worked hard enough for a long enough period of time. I like the song because it was slightly obvious, but a, a decent pop number. Again, Mr. Park says the song is all right, but D-Side aren't together yet, and he doesn't think they've worked hard enough for a long enough period of time. They stare on, with nowhere near the reaction Cowie obviously wanted, so they cut back to a replay of the performance we've just seen. This entire thing is not in the spirit of Top of the Pops Mm. at all. No. It's a jolly, upbeat show that celebrates all things that are pop and interesting. Yeah. You know, and even things that are pop and a bit shit. Yes, like, that's fine. You don't... It doesn't really, ultimately... It's not like it's too saccharine. Obviously, people would take the edge off it. But it's like, yeah. those people have all earned their place there. Mm. Unless you're... I don't know who was the worst for being just a big bitch. Maybe Bates? Mm. I don't know. But, like, you don't really seriously cock a snooker anyone. And then there's these two cunts who've come from wherever the fuck, from yeah. somewhere else, who have just... Sitting here and they're like... Yeah, well, no, I'm not sure about this. No, I don't think you're very good. Having having a go at the presenters, even, and just yeah. like, yeah, well, you were shit at that when you tried it, and you mm. were that. It's kind of like somebody turns up to your house party yeah. and and goes, hmm, yeah, sofa's a bit saggy. I don't think that wallpaper really works. Mm. It's like, 
Yeah. Get out of my house. Yes. What are you doing here? I mean, they are desperately trying to play up the shake-in Simon Cowell thing. You know, Fern has to sort of telegraph it by yeah. telling us that he's Mr. Meanie, you know. And, yeah, to prove it, we hear his opinions mm. on D-side. Here's the thing, right? Chris Cowie loves an ambush. Yeah. Obviously, he loves a fucking ambush because of what he did Johnny Rotten. Yeah. So... You know, we hear um, yeah. Richard Park's opinions on D-Side that they're apparently not quite there yet. They haven't worked hard enough. And then we see them in this sort of dark, no. blue-lit bit of the studio reacting to it. And, that, yeah, they've been ambushed in the man of Johnny Ron. That one lad should have said, well, fucking ask Jodie Marsh who works hard enough for a long hey. enough period of time then. <laughs> what it reminded me of, I don't know if either of you remember this, when the BBC rebooted Jukebox Jury for a little bit, I think, I guess it was the late 80s, early 90s, Yes, Glenn Madeira, famously was on there and the panel didn't know that he was out there in 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 probably not even a green room but probably a broom cupboard and um just completely slated it and destroyed it and then they brought glenn out and yeah. he was in tears and he's, he's got to go up and front it up to the panel yeah. and oh. it was that kind of really awkward telly i guess you have to kind of agree to that you have to sort of uh you have to yeah. kind of consent to doing that and that's why this this um d-side bit is so like unpleasant it's like however good or not they were they earned they yeah. earned their spot there it's really pulling the rug in a really unfair yeah. way to uh say yeah actually you shouldn't hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts they said what the f- are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Be here, it's like you've just, you know, you have crashed this place. And you should know it. It's like, what? Yeah. I mean, I suppose we've got to assume that unlike tearful Glenn Medeiros, they were maybe primed for this. They were told what was going to happen. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. No, I don't think so. I mean, they should have been. Yeah, they should have been. I think a floor manager just grabbed hold of D-side at the end of their performance and said, could you just stay here for a bit? Stand here a minute, yeah. yeah. Stay here for a bit. We've got a surprise for you. But it is just kind of like, they're not, they're a professional band just because they are a boy band. You know, and they may have been put together in whatever way. It, it That's kind of not the point. Like, they're not auditioning. Like, it just really weirds me yeah. out how they've kind of, how they've done this. It's like, no, they've passed that point. So, yeah. ugh. Sarah's so right about saying that this is contrary to the spirit of Top of the Pops in that sense mm. of somebody coming on and crashing the party and being a cunt. But there's also another aspect in which it's contrary to the spirit of it because what they're assuming by having these guys on there is that if we're Top of the Pops mm. viewers, we are 
by default we're BBC One viewers and that we're just generally yes. interested in the channel's yeah. light entertainment output. I don't think we are because something yeah, like yes. Fame Academy isn't a music show as such. It's a reality show. You know, fans of the Murder Dolls or Wayne Wonder or the no. band we're about to see next aren't going to be tuning in for that. You know, it makes as much sense as Top of the Pops having an elongated plug for mm. National Lottery Live or Strictly yeah. Come Dancing or, or the, the Vicar of Dimley, you know. <laughs> <laughs> any of those would have been better any of one of those and those shows aren't going to return the favour are they for fuck's sake you know and this this whole yeah. uh, this is the trouble this is what Cowell and Cowell's imitators had done to pop they effectively had turned pop or a large chunk of it into light entertainment yeah um, so, in a way, it's, it's just a sign of the way things work. The cross-platform brand synergization wasn't all one way, though. Um, an episode of Tomorrow's World in April of 2002 featured Kate Humble in the star bar, demonstrating a metal-detecting glove for nightclub bouncers who were looking for knives and guns in the wake of uh, 9-11. It sounds like some kind of anxiety dream. Yes. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> Can I just give a shout out to another podcast? Mm. The Tomorrow's World Audit Time podcast. They dredge that up. They basically do for Tomorrow's World what we do for Top of the Pops. So Ooh. all we need now is um, podcasts on fame and question time. <laughs> and the independent podcast community would have Thursday nights on BBC One absolutely locked down. <laughs> that podcast again, Tomorrow's World Audit Time. Hi. But that, the whole section lasts two and a half minutes. That's basically 10% of the show. Yes. And that's a, that's a, 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 a single we could have uh, listened to. It is. I, I looked at... Yeah, right. Because, yeah, you're right. People will be switching over to Weatherfield in their droves. The next song is only two minutes, 12 seconds long. Mm. So they literally could have fit another song in there. Yes. And you know, um, uh, you got Neil and I to have a look last time and see what we could have had and do a sort of yes. uh, counterfactual oh, yes. top of the pops. Well, going by the rules that it has to be going up and it can't have been on the previous week unless it's a number one. Mm. I had a look. Um, and in this stupid fucking star bar section, here's what they could have had. They could have had Jane's Addiction or Killing Joke or the Polyphonic Spree, mm. right? I mean, Jane's Addiction on top of the pops would have been a real moment, yeah. you know. <laughs> but no, we get yeah. fucking Eurovision failure woman and leathery neck man. <laughs> it's shade all the way down and side to side is this because they're having a go at, at, at D-side who, uh, and I know I said my own things, but those are good boys. <laughs> You leave those boys alone when they're standing there. It's like, fucking hell, That's it's not fair. It is not fair. But also, it's shade on the producers of the fucking show to say that that band that have just been on were not yeah. really ready. That's saying that the producers of the show and everyone who chose to put that band there instead of any other that they could have had, that's saying that they yeah. got it yeah. wrong. They made yeah, an yeah. error there. And then it's also shade on the on yeah. the viewers. It's like, well, you know what you just yeah. watched? <laughs> you thought that was a professional job, yes. but you were wrong. Because here I am, the arbiter of these things, who you've never clapped eyes on before, probably. And uh, yeah, that's what I think. And it's like, what? Like, if you just enjoyed that, which you might have done if you, if you were a, a young and then and then you have this guy just going, yeah, no, mm. no, they're not ready. It's just an insult to yeah. everyone yeah tally really started sticking its oar in by this point it's like oh well we can create stars out of bloody women who can't drive and blokes who work in airports uh, <laughs> oh let's have a go at making some pop stars and you know they were very successful at it but not very good pop stars in the main no i mean the whole thing was predicated on the idea that the chief requirement for being a pop star was being technically good at singing yes reaching a standard and we all know that it fucking isn't you know? and having a tragic backstory oh yeah and yeah. It, it also pulled back a curtain on the music industry you know it, it was saying all oh, of this is how it's done 
None of this bollocks about, you know, actually forming a band or working your arse off and gaining a following. You do this. You get on this and, and we'll sort it out for you. And it absolutely ruined the battle for the Christmas number one. Oh, for years. Years and years. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. It was great when Let's Get a Thing to Number One stunt is a little bit tired now, but it was great when yes. they got Rage Against the Machine to number one. Just, yes. to, just to cunt them all off. It was brilliant. Cotton brings up the fact that this isn't Grant's first appearance on Top of the Pops when the Monitor brings up her performance on the April 14th, 1983 episode, the one after the episode we did last month, performing I'm Never Giving Up by Sweet Dreams. Everyone here has to submit to the stocks, apart from your man Parks, mm. who I'm assuming has never done anything remotely embarrassing ever. Like, that yeah. might have taken the edge of it a bit if it had been like, ha here's a here's a picture of you in your... Tin no. bath when you were two. Yeah. I know this is kind of a cliche to say, but it's like this seems to be a man with yeah. without charisma or talent or anything much to offer the world, you know. I wonder about the kind of dynamic between young singers and somebody like um, Cary Grant, because I wonder if it's similar to footballers where you get managers who were no great shakes in their professional careers, you know, or didn't even have one. Like some of the most successful managers like Arsene Wenger or um, Jose Mourinho um, didn't really make it as, as players. And I always wonder like, you know, some of the players, I'm just like, oh, show us your medals then, you know? Yeah. And what's Carrie has just been in a, you know, um, a group Mm. who kind of flopped at, Eurovision, I certainly didn't win it. Oh, they did all right. I mean, fucking hell. I, I think the UK would be totally happy with a, with a sixth or seventh place finish in Eurovision. <laughs> well, they've been on Eurovision more than we have, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they didn't get booed and blamed for football violence that year, put it that way. <laughs> no, but... You know, if you're being coached by, I don't know, Elkie Brooks and all her looks or something, mm. at least you can point at some hit records. It only matters when it's on the wall, eh, Simon? Uh, yeah. The, I mean, the most famous vocal coach back in the day was Tona Debrett, and she wasn't a professional singer, and everyone mm. used to go to her. But then she wasn't on TV all the fucking time, you know, yeah. strutting about, telling everybody their shit. So, mm. yeah, I don't know. Well, I suppose it, it's different. It's I know yeah. I know exactly what you mean, but also it is kind of different skill sets, I guess. Like David Snedden, who was not great shakes as a pop star, mm. um, well, just wasn't quite ready yet, but went on to be a decent mm-hmm. songwriter. He co-wrote um, National Anthem by Lana Del Rey, which is an absolute banger. But I know what you mean. But yeah, I mean, the thing that got on my tits about Fame Academy was the BBC dipping its hands into the shit bucket of populist TV, mm. but still managing to be really snooty about it. <laughs> oh, we're a, we're a Fame Academy. Yeah. Even the fact that it's in Highgate, you know, fuck yeah. off. <laughs> yeah, it used to be known as Fame Secondary School before yeah. the Tories got in. <laughs> when the first episode of the second series of Fame Academy was broadcast, the tabloids had already pointed out that most of the contestants were already on songwriters' contracts, mm. and it quickly became apparent that the format had changed to Big Pop Idol Brother, <laughs> with clips of contestants falling out with each other being broadcast in highlight shows, and accusations that the feud that was building up between Park and presenter Patrick Kilty was completely fabricated. Even worse, it's ended up being directly scheduled against the new series of Pop Idol and coming off worse in the ratings. The eventual winner, Alex Parks, got to number three in November with Maybe That's What It Takes, but diminishing returns set in very quickly, and a third series, slated for 2004, was quietly scrapped. Mm. Park went on to work for Global Radio, 
who now own all those shitty radio stations, and Grant went on to work with a singer who had won a national talent competition held in a chain of wine bars, but couldn't get a record deal because labels were only interested in people who had already been popular on TV talent shows, forcing her to enter X Factor, Leona Lewis. And the star bar was knobbed off a few months later and became the costume storage room for Strictly <laughs> Come Dancing. <laughs> Fucking hell. Um, now, there's also a new band on the block. Um, they're called Sweet Dreams. Do you remember oh, Sweet Dreams? Fern, you would not hit the barrel <laughs> with that, would you? Here's Carrie on top of the pops a very long time ago, shall we say. It was a very, very long time ago. <laughs> And that's sh- that just goes to show you that with coaching, you can get better. That is a lovely hairdo there, Carrie. Loving that. <laughs> thank you so that's much. in fashion. What are you going on about? Really? <laughs> I think I'll be keeping mine to this style. Thank you. Cheers, guys. Now, a group who are far too surreal to take part in a reality TV show is the Super Furry Animals. <laughs> After Cotton tries to take the piss out of Cary Grant and we get an achingly fleeting glance at the Yellow Hurl era, this nearly three-minute dead spot comes to an end when Cotton introduces to a band who are far too surreal to be bothered with all this reality TV bollocks, Super Furry Animals and Golden Retriever. Formed in Cardiff in 1993 from a sort of Welsh language bands, Super Furry Animals signed to the Welsh indie label Angst in 1995 and put out the Clanfire PG in Space EP. Yes, I did completely dodge that name. <laughs> After gigging round London in 1996, they were spotted by Alan McGee of Creation Records at the Camden Monarch, who approached them afterwards and said he was willing to sign them on the condition that they started singing their songs in English. They told him that they actually were singing in English, but the PA was shit, (laughs) and they signed to the label. Their first release on Creation, Hometown Unicorn, got to number 47 in March of 1996, but the follow-up, God Show Me Magic, put them into the top 40, getting to number 33 in May of that year, sparking off a run of 11 top 40 singles throughout the rest of the 90s. After creation wound down in 2001, the band put out Ming. Did I say that right, Simon? Mung. Mung, I thought it was, yeah. I thought it was, but I didn't say it. (laughs) It means mane, like a lion's mane. The band put out Mung, an all-Welsh language LP on their own label, Placid Casual, which got to number 11 in the LP charts in May, was commended in the House of Commons for bigging up their native tongue, and remains the biggest-selling Welsh-language LP of all time. A year later, they were picked up by Epic and resumed their run of chart hits, and this, the follow-up to It's Not the End of the World, which got to number 30 in January of 2002, is the lead cut from their sixth album, Phantom Power, which came out last Monday, and it's a new entry this week at number 13. Well, Simon, as a fierce champion of the Welsh music scene, uh, a man who famously quit Melody Maker when they wouldn't put Max Boyce on the cover, let's not forget. Yeah. A man who accused me 
on an internet forum of being a massive racist. When I said that, I thought Murrumbuck Stanziger was Welsh. <laughs> Fucking hell, Simon. I, I was only saying that I thought he had a Welsh name. I wasn't implying that the Welsh lived under other people's sinks, for fuck's sake. <laughs> You need to have first go at this. Fair enough. I mean, by the way, I don't remember that, but I'm sorry. I do. <laughs> Where to start? Where to start? I mean, yeah, mm. there, there have been times, many times, when I think that the Super Fairy Animals are my favourite band in the entire Ooh. universe. And uh, for me, they're the greatest of all the Welsh bands, certainly. And I, I'm including mm. Manic Street Preachers in that. I don't think the wow. Manics would disagree. I know... Nicky Wire bows down before the genius of the Super Furries. He he knows they can do things the Manics can't do. So right. um, I, I'm going to have to ramble on for a little while about why I love them so Go much ahead. before I shut the fuck up and let Sarah in and before we get down to the specifics of this song. But the thing is, because I love them so much uh, and because I'm often the go-to guy for Welsh stuff, I've written about them so many times. Um mm. And um, I gathered a lot of my thoughts together on the sleeve notes for Zoom, their greatest hits album, five years ago. Right. So I'm going to have to paraphrase what I wrote there a little bit, if you don't mind. But um, to, to begin with, way back when I tried to figure out how, just how, how the Super Fairy Animals sort of emerged the way they did, how a band as sort of brilliantly strange as that could emerge mm. from Wales, I, I used to see it in evolutionary terms because there's this thing in darwinian evolution called island gigantism right where isolated populations of animals can mutate into outsized and freakish versions of themselves so you get things like the dodo or the komodo dragon or um, Mm. the giant tortoise due to the lack of predation and the lack of outside influences and forces and in musical terms wales particularly the welsh language music scene really was a world to itself Certainly the pre-internet age, mm. where, you know, you could be 20 miles from the English border, but a whole different universe, because there was no yeah. connection. So, you know, the Welsh language scene was separated linguistically and geographically from from the swing of things, you know. And even mm. though Superfair Animals were formed in Cardiff, they're a North Wales band in a lot of ways. They're, they're actually from all points of the pig's head. Um Dav is from Bangor, um, Kian is from Bangor, they're brothers, um, Gitto is from Cardiff, Bunf is from Cardiff, Griff was born in, in Pembrokeshire, Haverford West, I think, but grew up in Snowdonia. Right. So there's a, a North Wales majority just about. And the thing with North Wales, or just rural Wales in general, is you get these weird little pockets of stoner culture up there in the mountains, you know, where mm. people just sit around getting wasted and listen to these mad psychedelic records that nobody in England has heard of. And without giving a fuck what's cool in London. Certainly, you know, yeah. in the 90s, it was this real isolated little thing. You just get this kind of weirdness that, that evolves naturally from sort of like-minded people in these isolated places getting together and forming their own path, this sort of counterfactual reality that's got nothing to do with what's going on in the music press and what's going on in, mm. in, in sort of centres of things. And that isolation used to allow bands a rare freedom to develop, I think. And I, I think it helped Super Furry Animals grow into this truly unique and fully formed musical force, not in an ostentatious or or performative or affected way, like, look how weird we are, although there were, mm. you know, elements of that, I suppose, but just naturally so. And, and without any ironic intent and without kind of second-guessing 
the whims of tastemakers in the London scene. And I think that's what cripples London sometimes is the second guessing of, oh, how are people going to react to this? You know, yeah. this thing that we're doing is a comment on the thing before. And will people understand that comment? And mm. it's so refreshing for a band who would just fuck all to do with that. Yeah. And I, I do still think there's something in that theory, the island gigantism comparison. But what's wrong with that theory is that it implies an insularity that was never really there in the Super Furious. Because if you listen to their work, there's such an evident love of German cosmish and um, Brazilian psych and Jamaican reggae and Philly mm. soul, Nashville country. You know, they're an internationalist band that just happened yeah. to come from Wales. And that was so important at a time when the press was obsessed with Little Englanders. Mm. I didn't necessarily get it at first. I, I was put off by the press around them. They were missold as as a lads band, like a druggy lads band, you know, yeah. signed to creation, wearing cagoules, like a Welsh oasis. And um, mm. obviously that put me off. And, you know, you used to get those adverts, have you been missold PPI? Well, <laughs> I, I, I was missold SFA. <laughs> yeah, to begin with. But I, it's funny how you can remember exact moments. I remember the exact moment it clicked for me, and it was the afternoon of the Redden Festival, Saturday, 23rd August, 1997. I stood in the middle of the field. Super Fairy Animals were halfway up the main stage bill, and I'm sort of standing there with moderate to low expectations. Mm. And Griff Reese starts singing. Clarity just confuses me. The lines drawn on the map, a strange assembly. That bit from Demons. Except mm. that when he sang it, it was the most beautiful thing in the world. And it just <laughs> transfixed me. It just fucking grabbed my heart. You know, his voice, his voice, man. It's so yeah. rich with warmth and humanity and vulnerability and empathy. And he became my, I, I'd say my equal favourite male singer alongside Smokey Robinson. And I think I developed a bit of a man crush on Griff. He's so handsome. And <laughs> and he's got this sort of slow, calming, zen, wizard-like presence about him. And and he takes quite a long time to get the words out to answer a question. And, and, and when I've interviewed him, I've never been quite sure whether he's translating his thoughts in his head or just contemplating it really carefully. But then again, mm. one time when I was interviewing the Super Theories, someone turned up possibly um, one of Howard Marks's minions, and slapped a bag of weed the size of a pillow down on the table. So, you know, <laughs> that, that has to come into the equation. Um, but he just gives you this sense that everything's going to be okay in the world. I I'll never forget walking through Bordeaux after Wales had beaten Slovakia 2-1 in our first game in Euro 2016. Because um, Welsh people never go on about that tournament, do they? No, and, uh, never. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and a tram went past, and Griff Rees was on it, and he waved and smiled at me through the glass. And I just, thought, I just thought, oh, we're going to be all right here, you know. <laughs> and all, all the kind of, you know, I said that they're not performatively weird. They, they kind of are. All, all the peripheral stuff is fun, of course, you know, that Pete Fowler monsterism artwork that they have, mm. the alien helmets they wear sometimes, and famously the time they spunked all their record company advance on an army tank, um, yes. painted it blue, fitted it up with a PA system, and they used to roll into the backstage areas of various rock festivals blasting out techno. And then they got bored with that, <laughs> and they sold it to Don Henley out of the Eagles, oh. who collects tanks. Do you know about... Do you guys know about Big Tank Chess? Yes. And it's about time it was mentioned on Sharp Music. I don't know about this. Sarah doesn't know about it. All right, OK, right. So I should explain. Yeah, so really, the Super Furry selling their tank to Don Henley was the origin of 
it's this fictional pastime of big tank chess, which I invented with <laughs> with John Doran and John Tatlock, who we all know, and Sarah did. Ah, Sarah yes. did her Game of Thrones podcast with. And um, there's another rock star who collects tanks. I can't remember who it was, but we we started speculating that in fact loads of them do it right and yes. uh, and that the rock aristocracy all get together in the mojave desert and sit <laughs> in these big wooden control towers and move their tanks around in in a game of big tank chess laid out <laughs> in the desert and the fun was deciding who would definitely be a big tank chess player so don henley yes. obviously and we came up with people like jeff lynn Lindsay, yes. Lindsay Buckingham, um, Ringo Starr, they were all definitely in. Yeah, definitely big tank chess men. And we can now, um, by the way, factually almost, add Stephen Morris of New Order, who genuinely collects tanks. Right. So that was big tank chess. So uh, feel free to play at home. Who would be a big tank chess player? Um, they, they, they usually sort of wear aviator shades and sort of cheesecloth open neck shirts. I feel that's the kind of vibe yeah. of it. But all that kind of daft stuff around Super Furries isn't just bolted on. It's not like they were a conventional Brit rock band with a few eccentric hobbies. You know, they weren't basically cast with a tank. You know, mm. they've got a genuinely left field, lateral thinking approach to pop and. That that's probably helped by Griff's unusual method of playing guitar because he plays left-handed on a right-handed guitar strung upside down, which I think I'm right in saying Paul McCartney did that, Jimi Hendrix, but 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 it's quite rare and and it forces you to look at music in in a different way. But it's very rarely experimentalism for its own sake. I would say they never abandon pop melody for too long. I, I was I remember once I, I got drunk and I tried to explain what super furry animals meant to me and I blurted out they understand me with their melodies right and I <laughs> and I got laughed at for that but I meant it because their melodies they, they their melodies do seem to understand you the chord changes intuitively anticipate your own emotions and this song is not an example of that but it's a lot of fun but I am going to shut the fuck up for a bit so Sarah can come in. <laughs> Before you come in, Sarah, mm. uh, Welsh Oasis, don't look back in Bangor. Whee! Yeah, there it <laughs> yeah. is. Yeah, I have a great love for this band also. Um, I was at university in uh, Aberystwyth and uh, there was, uh, you know, while there was a, a thriving local scene and bigger bands did sometimes slep all the way down through the mountains to get to us, we did have to do our own excursions. Um, and I remember the local record shop organised a bus trip to Tenby to see Super Furries. Wow. And that was a couple of hours away. And it was great. It was like a school trip, but good. And, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's interesting what you were saying about, like, how how they sort of evolved out of the landscape in that way. Mm. I mean, obviously, there's a thing about the, about the coast as well, coastal towns, which are weird. Mm. Yes. There was a... Obviously, oh, I, I hate to use these words, but there was the whole cool Cymru thing that oh, you know, God, yeah. journalists of the time tried to make happen. Um, I think the opposite is also true. I think it is a sort of there is a sort of cultural Madagascar thing that happens there, mm. and yeah, a lot of it has to do with weed. Like there were a lot of people that I knew who uh, were in bands who had gone to Aberystwyth to study stuff like countryside management or physics, and then dropped out and just you know smoked weed dealt weed whatever and were in bands and you know they weren't all good but there were people like the crockets who were really good oh, yeah. and um murray the hump who begat keys yeah. mm. sorry the crockets who begat the crimea who were just 
a really wonderful band. Mm-hmm. So you would get stuff like that, the people who were just doing their own thing in the most natural way. Mm. Um, but of course, this also roped in the stereophonics, who are mm. incredibly pedestrian and, mm. and kind of conservative. Kind of gives that, you know, it's, it's almost the exception that proves the rule, I suppose. But yeah, uh, Super Furries, they're such a fun band. Mm. It's just so fun and clever and so kind of sweet and warm and so inventive and not like anybody else. A lot of sort of psychedelic pop can be quite ponderous and kind of quite inward-looking and quite full of itself and very superficial. And Super Fairies were kind of very light-hearted, but with real depth as well. Mm. And like you said, there was a weirdness about them, but it's not contrived. It's it's a very natural thing. Unlike your two, I wouldn't know the Super Furry animals if they shagged me none or... (laughs) <laughs> but I was quite impressed by this. I mean, the one thing that did hit me in the face was this absolutely reeks of the album of the week slot in early 70s, Top of the Popsers. <laughs> Do you think that was what Cowie was aiming for here? What, because it's a proper band playing live kind of thing? Mm. Maybe, but it was high in the charts. It was just a yeah. commercial fact that couldn't be ignored. I mean, the studio set has been massively bright and sterile so far, but this performance gives us a chance to see where the money's been spent, where the band do know what to do with themselves. I mean, the blocks at the back have suddenly gone all satiny and shimmery, and there are people standing at the back in, like, archways, in, in kind of orangey, orangutangy, chewbaccary costumes. Yeah, Wookiee or Yeti or whatever, yeah. yeah. They're like Sasquatches, aren't they? They're like big, yes. blonde Sasquatch. Yeah. Which is from the video, by the way, that, um, ah. those costumes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, some of them are playing, well, almost all of them are playing kettle drums, apart from one who's just standing there like a bouncer. <laughs> Aren't they timpani rather than, and, and floor toms in one case, yeah. Oh, yeah, you're probably right. But I yeah, there's that one guy, <laughs> there's that one guy who's like standing guard, looking impassive, probably one of their mates, probably the guy who whacked a pillow of weeds down on the interview yes. table that time. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Is he like the the, um, the bez of this band? Yeah, maybe, yeah, <laughs> fucking hell. Super Furry Animals are one or two actual bands on Top of the Pops tonight, and, and in mm. this era of Top of the Pops, you can pick and choose whether you want to play live or mime or sing live over backing tapes, but if you're in a band like this, you can't get out of playing live, can you? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is live there's all that chaotic guitar overload near the end which is not on the record uh, yeah i mean it's audibly definitely live isn't it i heard a podcast called off the beat mm. and track uh the other week with dougie Payne out of travis turns out he's a pop crazed youngster so hey up dougie stay pop crazed oh, oh hello yeah hello. and he said that when <laughs> travis first went on top of the pops him and the rest of the band were they were a bit knocked that they had to play live because it felt more to them like a gig that they had to nail than a chance to perform and put themselves over you know he said that they couldn't enjoy themselves like Slade and T-Rex obviously did when they went on top of the pops I suppose you can't ease your way into it the way you could with a gig you've got an hour and a half and you can kind of warm up a little bit yeah but like yeah you've just got to go and nail it in three minutes yeah you can't have a guitar made out of chocolate <laughs> Yeah, there is that. It does seem like it's it's kind of, uh, it's neither fish nor fowl, isn't it? Performing yeah. live on top of the pops. It's not quite a telly performance. Yeah. It's not quite a gig. And I, I'm sure there were people who who um, might who regretted it afterwards. Like, ah, oh, you know, mm. it's just a bit weird. And super furry animals have got around that with the um, Sasquatches. But the problem with that is, is Chris Cowers decided that they're the focal point and not the band. They, they cut back to them all the time and it's like right, those alcoves yeah we've seen them mate let's yeah. look at the band super furries themselves used to wear those costumes um, during right. gigs but only at the very end because they used to get really fucking sweaty oh yeah. <laughs> yeah oh imagine that oh god the whiff especially if you had yeah. weed into it Christ 
Yeah. <laughs> that meant that around this time, you always knew that Golden Retriever would be the encore because they're only going to come yeah, on yeah. for the encore in that, in that outfit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Also, I've got to shout out to Griff Reese's hair here. What a gorgeous 70s mop. Uh, mm, a mane. Yeah, it is a mane. If a mung. A mung. Um, it kind of looks like both the Alessi brothers at once, or like a brunette version of um, yes. Tommy, you know, in Carrie, you know, in the film Carrie, Tommy Ross, he takes Carrie mm. to the prom. He's sort of like a negative uh, yes. version of, of Tommy Ross. <laughs> Bless him. Yeah. I mean, this is a throwaway song, but the thing with Super Furries is that even their throwaway songs take a kind of off-kilter boomerang throwing path, you know. Um, so yeah. it's it's a 70s glam pastiche, similar feel to, I, I reckon, um, Back Off Boogaloo by Ringo Starr or He's Gonna Step On You mm. Again by John Congos. That kind of feel. Yes. And I just remember the first time I heard it, it just made me laugh out loud because <laughs> what they've done is they've taken a hard rock trope about women. You know, she's a witch or she's a mm. snake or she's a vixen or she's a tiger or whatever. Yes. And they've satirised it by making it about a really basic British yellow dog. You know, the default <laughs> dog, you know, she's a golden yes. retriever, but making it sound all sexy and badass. You know? <laughs> S- supposedly it was written about two actual golden retrievers and the dynamic between Griff's girlfriend's two dogs, one male and one female. And also it's taken right. the piss out of that old blues trope about Robert Johnson meeting the devil at the crossroads, except it's a roundabout. Right. And then it's a puppy at a zebra crossing. My favourite bit is stop. Said the puppy. That's just the best bit in the song. <laughs> yeah, and it's done completely deadpan as well. That's the thing is they were never self-consciously. Mm. They weren't. They might have been weird, but they weren't fucking wacky. Yes. This is from the album Phantom yeah. Power, as you said, which is one of the good ones. It's not not my favourite SFA album. Not Probably not even the top three, but it does have glorious stuff on it. Maybe the best one on it is Hello Sunshine, um, which is also a single, and it's the opening track. Yeah, that's lovely. It has the legendary verse, I'm a minger, you're a minger too, so come on, minger, I want to ming with you. <laughs> <laughs> which was always a massive, joyous sing-along moment at the gigs, that was. <laughs> this this performance, yeah, it's great, I think, because you know, they are they are playing live, but um, there's gold tinsel all over the floor, but just the way they are seems to be almost in defiance or against all all that crap you know um i noticed that griff yes never smiles uh, he looks a bit pissed off in fact i wonder if there was a backstory to mm. that i don't know but yeah liz bonnie now yeah. introduces them as the sublime super furry animals and i thought oh she's bang on go on liz she gets it Aww. so the following week golden retriever dropped 23 places to number 36 while the lp entered the chart at number four the follow-up Hello Sunshine, got to number 31 in November of this year and they go on to have two more top 40 hits before winding down for the first time in 2010. that note pop praise young says i do feel that this is as good a time as any to step away from this episode and catch his breaths so please come and join us tomorrow for the denouement of episode 61 of chart music my name's al needham on behalf of sarah b and simon price i command you to stay pop crazed <laughs> Sharp music. Great big owl.
Hello, I'm Tom, and I make a podcast where I log in to celebrities' Amazon accounts. It's called... What a brilliant idea for a pod. There's no original pods out there anymore, but this genuinely is. Thanks, Ben Bailey-Smith. Anyway, it's called... This is good, isn't it? It's clever, this podcast. You should do more. Thanks, Kerry Godleyman. It's called... This is such a great idea, by the way. What a great podcast. Shappi Corsander, you're too kind. The podcast is called... It's biographical. You can get all sorts of information out of people. This is a very good idea. Thank you, Nick Helm. It's called My Mate Bought a Toaster. I'm going to listen to this podcast. Thanks, Alex Horn. Can you tell your friends? Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.